Today's scripture reading comes from Matthew chapter 17, verses 1 through 12. Is it? Or 1 through, yeah, 1 through 12. Hear now God's word. And after six days, Jesus took him, took with him Peter and James and John his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents here, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. He was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, Tell no one the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. And the disciples asked him, Then why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? He answered, Elijah does come, and he will restore all things. But I tell you that Elijah has already come, and they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased. So also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. This is God's word. When um, just the other day, uh, Pastor John asked me, uh, hey, Drew, could you preach for me this Sunday? I'm still not feeling well. I said, of course, at any time, no problem. And I was talking with Pastor Chris about this, and he's like, wow. He's like, he asked you to preach? And I'm like, yeah, I know. I'm not that great. I, don't, I can't believe that John would ask me to preach. He's like, no, 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 that's not it. John must be really sick that he would give anyone the opportunity to preach. He loves preaching. He loves he. It brings him so much joy to get in front of the pulpit, to study God's word, and to share it with you all. And so um, it, we had a fun exchange, and I was just reminded what a privilege and what a joy and what a, um, it is for me to be preaching with you all today. And I was just thinking about just how blessed we are that we get to support one another, three different churches pre proclaiming the gospel here in San Francisco to be able to, amen, to be able to support one another when we need one another and to realize more and more that we are one body in Christ, that we are united together, not just as three different churches, but as Jesus' church here in San Francisco. I was reminded this uh, earlier or, or last week on last Wednesday when some of us gathered here to have our Ash Wednesday service, to remember that we come from dust and to make the most out of this time that we have here on earth because it is short. And because by remembering that our time here is short, we can make the most of our time here. So it's a joy to be here. Now, you all know me to different extents. Some of you know me a little more than others, but it's always good to get to know each other better. One fun fact that I get to share with that perhaps some of you guys know is that um, 
my ancestry, I'm Japanese American, so I was born here in San Francisco, raised here, lived most of my life here, but my ancestors come from Japan. And not only do my ancestors come from Japan, but my wife, my mother also come from Japan as well. And every summer I would spend growing up in Japan. Now in Japan, one of the things that they ask you pretty regularly is, what blood type are you? Now that sounds like a weird question to hear in our context, but they ask you that because they believe that blood types can tell how people behave. It's kind of like a Myers-Briggs test or a neogram that they have in Japan where they ask, oh, you know, they think that they could tell your personality by what your blood type is. Now, I don't know how true that is. I've never studied it much. I do know my own blood type being that it's O, and um, that's the extent to what I know. But another question that I was asked, I think it was by my mother-in-law, or maybe it was my wife and my mother-in-law talking, and the conversation was, are you an ocean person or a mountain person? Now, an ocean person or a mountain person? So the question there is, if you were to have a choice on where to vacation, or maybe where to live, do you want to live in vacation near the ocean, or do you want to live in vacation in the mountains? Living here in the San Francisco Bay Area, we're blessed, right? Because we have both. We have the oceans just right there. And then just drive a little bit, and you have mountains. In fact, this week was a reminder of the mountains and all these photos of, of the mountains all around us being covered in snow for the first time in a very long time. Now, in Jesus' time, if you were to ask these people, are you an ocean person or a mountain person? People might wonder where you're coming from as, as, you, as, you, as they pondered this question. But many of them would probably say that they were mountain people. Because oceans are places where they would associate with evil, with the demonic. Mountains are places where they would associate with God and the divine. Now we see this, that when Jesus calmed the storm, it wasn't just about Jesus saving his disciples' boat from sinking. It was that Jesus showed that he had power over the demonic, over the evil, because evil and the demonic were supposed to be in the oceans. The oceans are unpredictable. The oceans are unstable. And the oceans are full of danger. And so Jesus calming the waves and calming the storm showed that he was more powerful than the evil, more powerful than the demonic, and more powerful than nature. Mountains are places where we encounter the divine. And so when we see here Jesus up in the mountains, up on top of a mountain, we see that there's something special going on here. We know that our God is a God of details, and that these details matter. And so God leads Jesus to the top of the mountain for a purpose, to show to his disciples, to remind his disciples that he is God. Now, growing up here in San Francisco, a lot of times we would have these church camps and if, if you guys have gone to church camps or have gone on church retreats, you know that they're all in the Santa Cruz Mountains, right? 
There's all these Christian camps in the Santa Cruz Mountains, and people go there to get away. And they get there, and they spend a week, maybe three days, fellowshipping, singing worship songs, listening to someone speak, studying the Bible, staying up really late at night, spending too much time gossiping about uh, whatever. Also, at the same time, praising God. They go, that's where we have our mountaintop experiences. We go there to get away from the hustle and bustle of the city. We go there to get away, to get closer to God. And if we look at where people go to, no matter what religion, no matter where on earth, we see that the mountaintops are the places that people go to. If you go to Asia, you'll see that there's temples on the tops of mountains. If you go, probably the most famous place where there's a temple on top of a mountain um, is in Athens, the Parthenon up there where the temple of Athena was. Or perhaps even more famous than that is the temple in Jerusalem on top of God's holy hill. Um, the temple of the, the temple was, was there, was destroyed. A church was built on top of that and then a mosque on top of that. And so the mountain is a place where we encounter the divine. Now, here in this passage, we see Jesus in a very familiar passage. At Trinity, we've been studying, this, we've been studying Jesus' life over the course of the last few weeks, and we see that this is the transfiguration. And this is a story that is probably pretty familiar for those of us who are Christian. And before I get into this story, please pray with me. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have brought us through two mountaintop places, a place where we can get to meet you and know you more intimately and more divinely. But we also thank you that you send us down from the mountain to proclaim your truth in the valleys. Help us to study and help us to, to hear your voice. Help me to decrease and help, and may you increase as we study your scripture today. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So Jesus is on top of this mountain. We see Moses and Elijah somehow appear there. What's going on? What's going on in the disciples' mind? And what's going on in the mind of the early Christians who heard this story? Who heard this story proclaimed? Well, as you know, most early Christians were Jewish. And as they heard this story proclaimed, they would be reminded back. They would think about Moses. And they would think back to Moses' mountaintop experience. In Exodus 24, we see that Moses met God on top of Mount Sinai. And on top of Mount Sinai, Moses receives the law, the Ten Commandments. And he saw God pass him by. Right? He asked God, can, you, can I see you as you pass by? And God tells Moses, you can see me, but you can't see my face. And he hides, he covers Moses' hand, face with his hand. And as he passes by, he sees God's backside. And we see that in this story, after Moses spends time with God, that he comes down from the mountain and he returns. And what he sees is Aaron, who had made a golden calf for the Israelites. And Moses is forced to confront the Israelites' idolatry. 
Moses intercedes on behalf of the Israelites. He said, take my life. Don't punish them. Punish me. May I be the one you punish for their sake. But instead, he, God tells Moses, no. No. I'm going to send a plague. And he sends a plague because of the Israelites' idolatry. Now, along with Moses, who represents the law, we see Elijah, who represents the, pro the prophets, with Jesus. And we're reminded of Elijah's mountaintop experience. In 1 Kings 18, Elijah goes on top of a mountain, Mount Carmel. And on top of Mount Carmel, he has a battle with the prophets of Baal. The 450 prophets of Baal gather in front of Elijah, and they challenge each other. They challenge each other to prove whose God was more real and whose God was more faithful. And Elijah taunts the prophets of Baal. Where is your God? Because their God did not respond to their prayers. Where is your God? Maybe he's on the toilet. Maybe he can't hear you. He taunts them. And Elijah prays. He pours water on the altar. And God, sent fi God sends fire from heaven to show not only the prophets of Baal, not only the Israelites, but even to Elijah, that he is a God that hears prayer, that he is a live and living God who answers, who cares, who is mighty. And we see that Elijah has this mountaintop experience where he defeats the 450 prophets. What happens when Elijah comes down from the mountain? Well, 1 Kings 19, Jezebel threatens him. And it says that Elijah was afraid. And he runs away. And he tells God, I want to die. He's afraid. He's probably struggling with depression. And yet in the midst of all this, God meets him there too. An angel comes and brings Elijah food. God tells him to go to another mountain, a mountain called Mount Horeb, which scholars believe is the same mountain as Mount Sinai, the mountain that God was encountered by Moses. And so he goes. Elijah goes to this mountain, to Mount Horeb, and God passes Elijah by on that mountain as well. We all know this story too, right? Where there was a, a great wind, but God wasn't it. There was a great fire and God wasn't in it, but God was in a still, small voice. And that's where Elijah encounters God. He does not see him, but God reminds him in this still, small voice, that Elijah, he reminds Elijah that he is not alone. But there are 7,000 others who had not bowed the knee to Baal. As the early church was hearing these stories, as the disciples were sitting there, Peter, James, and John were seeing all this going on. They see Jesus' mountaintop experience. And the highlight of this message isn't that Moses and Elijah had miraculously appeared. It isn't that Jesus' clothes turned white. It isn't that as 
uh, Mark, I believe, tells us that Jesus' face, or was it Luke, that Jesus' face turned white, brightly white. But the highlight of this story is that God proclaims that Jesus is his son with whom he is well pleased, whom he loves, with whom he is well pleased. Now, if we were to rewind back and go back to Matthew chapter 3, we hear the first time that God proclaims this upon Jesus. This is in Jesus' baptism. When Jesus is baptized in front of everyone, the Spirit descends upon him like a dove. And God the Father proclaims, This is my Son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. And here, we hear the same voice. But he adds, but what God adds to this is he tells us to listen to him. God tells us, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. And so afterwards, after this mountaintop experience, Jesus and his disciples head back down. And at the bottom of the hill, Jesus heals a boy with a demon, a demon that the other disciples could not cast out. Why? Because they didn't have the faith needed to cast this demon out. And this is where Jesus shows that he has the power, that he, those who have faith in him are able to do miraculous things. So what can we learn from this story? It's a great story. It's an important story. It's a story that so quickly becomes one of morality, one of where we kind of just think about, oh, the, the law and the prophets, the Old Testament proclaims that Jesus is, is, is God. And this is true. Don't get me wrong. But I think there's more to learn from this story. I think one, one thing that I want to bring to your attention today is that at the mountaintop, that's where we see and that's where we listen to only Jesus. We think about Moses being the law and Elijah being the prophets. But we also forget that the law brings us death. And the prophetic, which brings blessing and judgment, that that's not the end all be all. Nor is dead religion, which doesn't allow God room to act. But it's Jesus who brings life. It was really neat, um, just at first, as we were reciting in our liturgy, um, from the New City Catechism, what does the law of God require? It requires personal, perfect, and perpetual obedience, that we love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love our neighbors as ourselves. What God forbids should never be done, and what God commands should, never, should always be done. Now, I don't know about you, but I can't do that. <laughs> Sounds like you can't either. And I think that's what we forget. And I think that's the good news. Eventually, later on in these questions, going through the New City Catechism, it'll challenge us with the fact that we can't do these things. We can't live perfect lives. It reminds us that the law brings death. And so when Moses is standing there, we're reminded that the law brings death. When Elijah's standing there, it reminds us that while the prophetic is important and it brings us blessings and judgment, 
that Jesus is even greater than that. And so we see that after Moses and Elijah appear, they disappear too. Because it's, Jesus, it reminds us that it's only Jesus that the prophetic challenges us and the prophetic challenges us that the law shows us that we can't live perfectly. What remains is Jesus. Now when we see that Peter is here is, is saying, oh, I'm going to build some tents for you guys. That was an act of religious obedience. Peter is not building tents here so that people can rest. Peter is building tents here because this is the festival of booths. The festival of booths where the Israelites, even today, our Jewish friends even today, celebrate this once a year where they built these, these booths, these tents, to remind them of the 40 years that they spent wandering the desert. And yet here we see that it's only Jesus, that these booths don't even matter, that this religion doesn't even matter, but it's all about Jesus. And that Jesus, these booths were made there so that we could dwell with God. And God is saying, you don't need those booths anymore because Jesus came to dwell with you. And it's Jesus who brings life. So there, here in this picture, we see that there's grace for Moses and Elijah. Moses, if you are like me, we're, I'm reminded that Moses failed God in all the ways that he tried to serve God. He failed God. He failed God because he hit the rock with anger. And because of that, he wasn't allowed into the promised land. Yet the same Moses, he was able to see God, not his face. But we see that there's grace for Moses because he gets to see God's face in Jesus on top of this mountain. And we see the same grace for Elijah. But we see an even bigger grace for Moses. This Moses that was prohibited from entering the promised land. Where is he now? He is in Israel, in the promised land. That God had grace on Moses. Say, Moses, I know I, pre I prevented you from coming into the promised land, but here you are now. You get to see the son of, you get to see my face. You get to see and be in the promised land as well. And there's grace here for the disciples. There's grace here for the disciples because they get to see Jesus alone no longer distracted by, by the law, no longer distracted by the prophets, but Jesus alone. And they also got to hear God speak. My. I don't know about you, but I would love to hear God speak more audibly in my life. It's happened to me a couple of times where I can only but say that was God's voice. I don't understand how it was but that was God's voice. But what I would give to hear God's voice more frequently. What a joy it must have been. What a powerful thing it must have been for the disciples to hear God's voice. To hear, this is my son whom I love. Listen to him. And there's grace here for you and me as well. In 2 Corinthians 3, Paul writes, he writes about the transfiguration, but not directly. In, first, in 2 Corinthians 3, verse 7, Paul writes, Now if the ministry of death, 
carved in letters on stone, came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? For it is there was glory in the ministry of condemnation. The ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. And so Paul reminds us that there was glory in this ministry of death, but in the ministry of righteousness. The righteousness, not our righteousness, but the righteousness found in Jesus. There is more glory there. And that's the grace for you and me. That we do not need to earn our salvation. That Jesus has earned our salvation. That Jesus' death on the cross has allowed us to live more fully, that has allowed us to live freely, that has allowed us to live without fear of the law, without the fear of the prophetic, and to live holy lives. Because of what Jesus has done, we are allowed and able to live glorious lives, one where we don't earn our salvation, but live into it, one where we live into a new life, an abundant life with Jesus. And I think that brings me to my second point, that when we come down from the mountain, God uses us to make a difference. Because we are free to live our lives apart from the law, because the law cannot condemn us anymore, we're able to make a difference in the lives of those around us. Just as Moses interceded for the Israelites when he came down, just as Elijah anointed Elisha to succeed him and carry on his perfecting ministry after coming down from the, from the mountain, Jesus shows the disciples the power of faith in him. We're able to live in this faith. We're able to live mighty lives, lives of faith, trusting that God is more than sufficient, trusting that our sufferings are not in vain, trusting that God has begun a new thing and we're invited into that. God didn't come that we would be good people. God came so that we would have abundant life. God came in Jesus so that we would be freed from the shackles of death. God came so that we could live without shame. God came so we could live without guilt. Jesus came so that we might show and teach and embody what living life like that might look like. Every time I chat with Pastor John, I'm just so blessed about your Wednesday gatherings and just how much you guys strive to live that way. As a new family, a family that makes no sense to this world, why is it that people from different Different countries, different customs, different cultures can gather together and eat and rejoice as a family. Only because of Jesus can this, be power, can this happen. Only because of Jesus can we set aside our differences, our political differences, our cultural differences, our, our language differences, and come together and to say that this is my brother, this is my sister, that these are more than friends, that these people are family. And so, 
finally, I want to come to my third point, which is that now in this season of Lent, we journey with Jesus. After the transfiguration, after we've seen Jesus, we cannot but help and follow him. And in this 40 days of Lent, which began last Wednesday, we're invited to take a serious look at our spiritual lives, to take, to have a reset of sorts, a chance for us to be challenged, to pray more, to take spiritual disciplines more faithfully, maybe by fasting, and to use the gifts that God has given us our money, our times, and our treasure to care for people. In other words, Lent is a time of prayer, of almsgiving, and of fasting. In these 40 days, we're reminded that Moses spent 40 days on the mountain in Exodus 34. He spent 40 days after he had seen God's glory. That Elijah spent 40 days in the desert after his depression, after being fed by angels. And Jesus spent 40 days in the desert before he began his earthly ministry. In the same way, we're invited to come together as a church community, to take these things seriously and to ponder and to reflect and to think and to act on these things. Now, it's easy to become legalistic about Lent. I'm going to give up doing something. I'm going to do my best to pray every day. I'm going to do my best to read the devotionals that we're all reading together every day. I'm going to text 33777 to get onto the daily devotionals that go out every day. And then feel like a great failure when I eat, when I wasn't supposed to, when I forgot to pray, when I was supposed to, when I realized that I've spent three days without reading the devotional that was given to us. But that's not what it's about. It's about a time where we turn our eyes and we realize ever the more that Jesus is our only hope. In just a few minutes, we're going to have a chance to partake with Jesus in this foretaste of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. In a foretaste of your Wednesday dinners, which is a foretaste of this great banquet that we will one day feast together in heaven. The people here at the porch, the people at First Pres, the people at Trinity, and all the churches here in San Francisco, in all the world, gathered together to have a feast with Jesus. And this is a reminder, a foretaste of that. I want to leave you with one quote about these two mountaintop experiences or two mountaintop experiences. I'm going to bring you into the second one here. Theologian Tom Wright, he writes, the scene at the transfiguration offers a strange parallel and contrast to the crucifixion. If you're going to meditate on the one, you might as well hold on the other in your mind as well as a sort of backdrop. 
Here on a mountain is Jesus revealed in glory. There on a hill outside of Jerusalem is Jesus revealed in shame. Here his clothes are shining white. There they have been stripped off and soldiers have gambled for them. Here he is flanked by Moses and Elijah. There he is flanked by two brigands representing the level to which Israel had sunk in rebellion against God. Here, a bright cloud overshadows the scene. There, darkness comes upon the land. Here, Peter blurts out how wonderful it all is. There, he is hiding in shame. After denying, he even knows Jesus. Here, a voice from God himself declares that this is his wondrous, wonderful son. There, a pagan soldier declares in surprise, that this really was God's son. The word to the disciples then is just as much a word to us today. If you want to find the way, the way to God, the way to the promised land, you must listen to him. So church, I have a question to leave you with. What is God saying to you? What is he calling you to do. I'll give you a moment to reflect on that, and then I'll close this time in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, it's a scary thing to quiet our hearts, to quiet our ears, to quiet our souls, to listen to you. I would rather be distracted and not try to hear your voice because it is a fearful thing to do so. But it is also a life-giving thing to do so. When we listen to you, we hear your voice. When we hear your voice, we are given the opportunity to be obedient. And we, we are obedient. We realize that we are blessed by being ever the more the person you desire us to be. Because we are called to walk by faith. And when we walk by faith, we see that you show up. When we walk by faith, we realize that we see a glimpse of what it, become, what it means to be more human than we already are. When we walk by faith, we see what it means to walk with you and to see Jesus even more than we, we do. So God, help us to have the, the courage to do so. Help us to have the courage to listen to him. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. <laughs>